this morning. What, what is faith, right? What is, is, it, is it belief? You know, we just got done doing some membership vows that had um, the first three, if you notice, it, said, it started with, do you believe? And then the second three are, do you promise, right? So is believing and having faith, are those the same things? Are they different? And if so, how? Is it, is it possible to believe in God without believing God? Right? Can we believe that God exists, that even that He's the God of the Bible and that what He says is true, that the gospel is true, but we don't believe it, that His promises are for us? At the center of, of what uh, is, is popularly referred to in, in, in ways that are helpful and not as this kind of deconstruction moment we are seeing in the church is a question, of the, is this question, can you have faith in something that you don't feel is true. Maybe, maybe, can you, maybe the question for you is, is, can you have faith in something that you didn't ever think feel was true? Or maybe you used to, but now don't. To whatever degree. These are the questions that are like, almost like in between the lines of, of, of Galatians chapter 3. It's, the, it's this experience of and the relationship between grace and faith and salvation. And that is the root of what Paul is addressing in chapter 3. And so let's jump right in into the first five verses with the law and lesser laws because he goes straight to the point. Like He's, he's saying, like, whatever your symptoms are, whatever questions you're asking, this is the thing that's making you ask them. That, that, that you are trying to live by the Torah, which is God's law, and it's crushing you because you're expecting, you're, you're treating it in, as, as something that it was never intended to be. And so I say that, you know, the law and lesser laws because um, we maybe, you may not be used to uh, operating off of or treating Torah and God's law in that way, but we do have our own laws that we, we do that with. And that's a helpful way to illustrate it. I've mentioned before that I, um, I came to faith in college. Uh, it's the end of my junior year, but the 12 to 18 months leading up to that point, uh, God was, we'll call it blessing me, uh, with a, a set of circumstances and personal situations that were tenderizing, if not pulverizing, my heart. Right? I was having some really bad conflict with my parents, um, I moved out of my dad's house into my mom's house as a result of that. I went through a bad breakup that I was the one that ended the relationship. And in so doing, and even up to that point, it was this really uncomfortable mirror reflecting my own hypocrisy right back at me. And so for at least a year leading up to the point where I, I became a Christian, I gave my life to Christ, I, was haunt, I had this kind of haunting realization that gradually became more and more clear that I was not the person I thought I was or the person that I wanted to be. In fact, it, it was actually even worse than that because I knew acutely that when you're in college, let's just, just be really honest about this, you're an adult, but you're not adulting, okay? Right? I, and if you're in college, I, like, no shame, whatever, no judgment at all. I'm jealous, actually, okay? It's a magical, awesome time, Okay? <laughs> enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with that. And I knew that in that moment, if I couldn't be the person I wanted to be and thought I was in college, I was doomed because it was only going to get harder from there on out. And that was devastating. 
So as I said, I wasn't relying on God's law or Torah. I, didn't, I, probably, I don't think I'd even heard the word Torah then. I was, so I certainly wasn't depending on it or relying on it for salvation. But, but I was relying on an assumed modern cultural equivalent. It's, it, it's kind of like the Bud Light to the craft beer of Torah. Okay? And it's something that, that sociologists coined in 2005 called moralistic therapeutic deism. So what that means and how that translated for me was I believe that if I just had good intentions and if I just did the right thing, then everything will work out and I will be happy. Mostly happy. It doesn't have to be like, you know, rainbows and unicorns happy. It could just be like content, right? It's kind of like, do we have any West Wing fans? Okay, I love West Wing. This is not a trap, I promise. Okay. <laughs> West Wing is fantastic. One of the reasons I love it is because it's so obvious what the right decision is, right? Even if it's complicated, you know, President Bartlett always comes in and he has this like ninja move that's like everybody actually either gets their comeuppance as they actually deserve or is cared for and has, is given grace as they deserve. And it's just awesome and not at all what life is like, <laughs> right? It's way too convenient. And... And what happens with moralistic therapeutic deism is God becomes a lot like President Bartlett, who is in the background of the episodes until you need his help, and then he swoops in and as a cosmic therapist and problem solver, intervening in your personal need and saves the day. But the problem, and where President Bartlett is definitely not like Jesus, right, is that, and, and our experience of him especially, is that when that is how you see God, you only ever need his help when you just don't get it. You, you, you only ever call on him when you're desperate. And so when he answers, because he still does sometimes, even as he answers, you feel it and experience it as impatient, as being intolerant, as, as just like, why don't you get it, Brad? Are you this slow? How can, you can't even do this in college? How are you going to... I guess I'll just be here with you as you need me. Tolerating someone is not loving them. That's not the gospel. That's why it's moralistic therapeutic deism. Maybe you didn't believe that same thing as I did, but moralistic therapeutic deism is just one kind of sub-expression of the same lesser law that every single person in this room, because you live in the United States in the 21st century, I guarantee you, you have been influenced by and are tempted to rely on, and that is individualism. Individualism says that, if you, uh, that, that we live as if your world... Our world is ultimate reality. We live as if our world is ultimate reality, and fulfilling our potential is our utmost priority. Okay? Now, if you're a Christian, you know better, right? We know better. We know that when, when, when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, you know, what, what, is the, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's not individualism, and you'd be correct. But the key words here is that we are tempted to rely on and live as if. Living as if, or living by the law, as, as Paul describes in Galatians 3, is another way of saying what you have faith in, 
what, who or what you rely on for your ultimate happiness or meaning or dignity, value, and worth, that is what you are putting your faith in. That is what you expect and hope is your salvation. Whether that is following God's law and moral performance, whether that is picking yourself up by your bootstrap and, and paving uh, and blazing your own path to whatever, that's what that means. And so to, to kind of like help us see this in this passage, um, if you're not familiar with uh, this, it's called The Message. Uh, and The Message is written by Eugene Peterson. And so it's basically, it's a paraphrase of an English translation of Scripture. So it's one further step removed than a, tip, a Bible. So it's not technically Scripture, but sometimes it's helpful to read it as a way of getting to the heart of something, to get to, get to the soul of something. And I'm not going to just read the first five verses in the message. I'm, I'm also, also uh, on the slide behind me, you'll see it is, I've underlined the portions that I have changed or added to help us see how much we are influenced by individualism and the way that it affects our faith. And so here's from the message, verses one through five, the, the paraphrase of it. You crazy Galatians. Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough, implying that Paul's, Paul's implying that his preaching and teaching is the means by which they saw Jesus. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by striving for personal happiness and achieving work-life balance? Can I get an Amen. Or is it by responding to God's message and resting in his promise to provide all that you need? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by, by optimizing their life or applying new techniques what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin with, how do you suppose you could perfect it through self-reliance and autonomy? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you don't stop confusing your rights with true freedom and your world with ultimate reality. Answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your lives you could never do for yourselves, does he do these things because you relentlessly pursue self-fulfillment or because you trust his self-fulfillment enough to let him? What Paul is articulating here and what he's sandwiching his thesis with is a description of the problem and then a description of the symptom. And the symptom is described in verses 10 through 14. It's this cursed reliance, right? Now, before we jump into this, or as we jump into this, you need to know and not hear what Paul isn't saying, okay? Don't hear what Paul's not saying. He's not saying that doing good works is bad, even, even following Torah, he's not saying that that's bad at all. He's saying that relying on them for your ultimate happiness and meaning and dignity, value, and worth as a means of saving yourself instead of allowing God to save you, that, that is to spurn God's blessing for self-imposed cursing. This language of cursing, it... it our familiarity with that word has more to do with like Harry Potter and witches and wizards than it does scripture. And so this is not another way of saying that you are, somebody has cast a spell on them. What he's saying here, and the way that the Bible uses the word curse, is that it's the opposite of blessing. 
It is the opposite of shalom, that state of flourishing that is perfect joy, peace, and contentment, and relationship with God and one another. Cursing is an existential carried on a stick. It motivates us with the promise of satisfaction, but always keeps it perpetually just out of reach. Another way of saying this is, cursing extracts and subtracts what blessing imputes and multiplies. Cursing extracts and subtracts what blessing imputes and multiplies. So in using this word, what Paul is saying is that it is subtracting and extracting grace. He's saying that this cannot be, this living according to the flesh that he describes in verse 3, it cannot be an add-on to grace. It is not something that can exist alongside faith because it is a self-reliance that is fundamentally incompatible with the gospel. So he says, you know, earlier in, in uh, verse 1, who has bewitched you or who has put a spell on you, it, it's, it's rhetorical, but not because Paul thinks that somebody actually cast a spell on them or even necessarily cursed them, especially in the Harry Potter sense, but, but he's, it's a rhetorical question because what he is trying to communicate is that, that they are as blind and burdened as one who is spellbound and cursed. That, and, and that it's, it's unnecessary. The hard part about this, and the reason why he's speaking so strongly to the Galatians, is that it is impossible to see in yourself and really clear in everybody else. You should listen to me on this, because as a pastor, I have a particular expertise in this. Okay? It's literally my job, not to be blind to myself, but to see it, right? So let me actually speak very, very bluntly about how, how I am blind to my own self-cursing. I came across a a rediscovered a quote that I I really love recently. It's from uh, John Ortberg. He's a pastor and author. And he says that leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can handle. (laughs) Which, like, awesome. That sounds like, okay, cool. I just got to figure out the rate that they can handle. But here's the problem. And here's my problem. Is that disappointing people at any rate is hard for me to handle. It's actually not about you. It's about me. See, I, I rely on not disappointing people for my meaning and my worth. In a lot of ways, it's probably the really bad motivation that God used to make me a pastor, and I hope and pray he's redeeming that. But it is crushing. It's a crushing curse. Let me even be specific, because it's really easy to be like, oh, yeah, here, I'm a sinner too. Like, let me be very specific, right? If I remember an email that I either got earlier today and is really important and need to respond to quickly or uh, is of medium importance or lesser importance and I've just, it's just been way too long since I've responded, if I remember it like within 30 minutes of me going to bed, I will literally lose sleep that night. Like not like another 30 minutes, like a couple few hours, okay? I, will, I find myself often either being tempted or actually avoiding saying hard truth because I can't figure out how to say it without causing disappointment. So my not disappointing that is therefore functionally more important than me saying a hard truth that may serve and care for somebody well. And that hard truth might not be like, you messed up, right? It could be like a hard truth about myself, a vulnerability. It could be a hard truth that, that doesn't have anything to do with, with what, what somebody, other, somebody else may have or may not have contributed. It's incredibly unloving and selfish, right? 
I, especially uh, starting with, and, and yes, since the pandemic, often feel like I'm kind of close on to, to the edge of burnout because I say yes to way too many things because I don't want to say no and disappoint somebody, right? And then, ironically, instead of actually disappointing fewer people, I end up disappointing more people when I can't do it all, or I disappoint different people because I've just, it's just impossible. It's kind of like a, it's like playing whack-a-mole with expectations, right? But it's, what's particularly nefarious about what I'm trying to describe here is the law, the lesser law that I live by or rely on is whatever everybody else's is. Because when it's, my, when, it's, when it's everybody else's expectations that I'm trying not to disappoint, it's, I'm, I'm not just living according to my law, I'm living according to whatever yours is as well, whether you are relying on it or not. This translates at home. It's not just work and ministry. Uh, with Hannah and our boys, I, I tried, like, I just shoot for not disappointing anybody. And let me tell you how impossible that is with a six-year-old and an almost two-year-old right? It is, you will never experience shalom or blessing, okay? It just won't happen. It is, it is at best a short-term shalom, okay? And what's the worst, the worst thing about all this is, is it's like, if you're thinking about your own thing, like whatever that is, like you know then that it's a lot like being that frog in the proverbial pot of tepid water brought slowly to a boil. You don't realize it until it's too late, and what you need then, what we all need, is a grace that shocks us awake. <laughs> like your wife telling you that her primary goal is that you would have fun again. That's grace. Paul, this is what he does in verses 6 through 9. And I, it's a little bit culturally chronologically dis distant from us, but that's what he does when he says, consider Abraham in verses 9 through 6, or 6 through 9. Now, um, I got three points on this, and this is like, this is the meat for the sandwich here, okay? This is the gospel good news, because he says, consider Abraham, and specifically and especially that he was saved by grace through faith. Uh, verses 8 and 6 are going to be on the screen in reverse order to help us kind of see this relationship in, in his argument, right? And what you may not realize, if you don't know who Abraham is, this is, for this part, all you need to know is that he grew up in and lived during the very early Old Testament in, a, in the ancient Near East. And back then, your legacy that you lived by, or the thing that the law, the lesser law that you lived by was legacy, Right? It was the thing that brought you meaning and worth. And what I mean by legacy is having an heir, having someone to pass along your name, your memory, your wealth, all of the fruit of your labors of a lifelong. That's how you know it didn't just disappear like a vapor when you died too. Like That's how you knew it was worth doing something. Okay? Abraham is childless. And so when Paul is quoting uh, in, in verse 6 when he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, what he is doing is he is quoting verbatim Genesis 17, verse 6, when God tells Abraham also in the context there, he says, what the promise he believed is that I will give you as many offspring, as, as many children, generations of children, as, as number the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. He says, let me just pause here. 
Isn't that bonkers that the thing that we are tempted to use that is not God to save ourselves, God actually meets that longing anyway? Like, that's grace. He doesn't rebuke Abraham. He gives the promise. So God is saying, in in essence, in Genesis 17, he's saying, Abraham, this thing that you're relying on for your salvation, that you're putting your faith in, is a cursed enslavement to a carrot on the stick. But Abraham, I have good news. Your offspring will not only inherit your earthly legacy, but mine as well. He says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'm going to give you this promised land. In Genesis 17, he says, yes, but it's actually even bigger than that because in you, all the nations of the earth will be, will be blessed. All the generations that ever came, the entire cosmos, creation itself is your inheritance and the, inheritance, the legacy that you are leaving and I will do it. He says, I see your heart's longing and raise you the redemption of everything. And I'll do so despite impossible odds, because by this time, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are old, like ancient old, right? I will do so beyond your imagination, as number of the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea, and it won't depend on you at all, because it's right after this part that God makes the covenant with Abraham that I'm really tempted to keep preaching on, because it's amazing, and I'm going to resist the temptation and keep going. But you should read it. It's incredible and weird, but incredible. And all... God says to Abraham, the only thing he has to do is believe him. And it said that he was counted as righteous. When Abraham believes, and this is what verse 8 is all about, when Abraham believes, he is looking forward in faith to what we look behind in faith to which is that the offspring that God promises Abraham is first and foremost Jesus. It's in the singular. It's not, it's not plural. And he's saying, what he's saying in this is what Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases in verses 13, 14. He says, Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happens when Jesus was nailed to the cross He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. Now, because of that, the air is cleared and we can see that Abraham's blessing is present and available for non-Jews too. That is huge. We are all able to receive God's life, his spirit, in and with us by believing just the way Abraham received it. He didn't achieve it. He trusted that God would deliver on his promise. Our literally sitting here this morning is the fruit of that promise fulfilled. We can know that God was faithful to fulfill his promise by grace and definitely not by faith because if you know Abraham's story, he's a slow one, okay? It's It's very empathizing. The fact that this is, that we are doing this right here and right now, separated by millennia, is a faithfulness we don't have an imagination big enough to fathom. The second thing, that, that the second way that Paul is trying to shock us awake with grace by considering Abraham is considering that his faith was grown by faith. Sorry, by grace. His faith was grown by grace. You see, in Genesis 17, which he's quoting, this isn't the first time God promises him offspring. 
which is really funny. It's actually the second time, okay? The first time that he promises him, it just says and describes in Genesis 12 in the text that, that Abraham left his, his, his father's land in the country of Ur and came and went to the promised land. So he's trusting God and going to the promised land as God invites him to do so. And it just says that he brought with him his nephew Lot. Now, he doesn't explain why he brought him along. He didn't know, you know, we don't know if he just needed a roadie or, or whatever. But for Lot, it would have made a lot more sense than to going into an unknown place to, to stay in his father's land and to flourish there because it's known and familiar. Commentators believe that what's happening there is Abraham's like, okay, I'll go to that promised land, but I'm going to bring some other family with me because I don't have kids and I don't know, I don't know that I totally believe you, God. I'm going to bring some extended family because it'll probably be through him. In Genesis 17, he says that he actually names his heir, and it's not one of his offspring because he doesn't have kids yet. My whole point in this and why this is important is, is it's, rem it's reminding the Galatians, Paul is reminding the Galatians that, that grace is unfazed, that grace is relentless, and it knows that we are slow on the uptake. We, it knows that we need to hear God's promises not just once, not just twice, not even a dozen, time, dozen times, but all the times. Because, let me put it this way, even if we believe in God and if we believe in Jesus, like Abraham believed and looked forward in faith, we are slow to believe and rely on God's promises. And God does not tolerate us. He is not put out with our struggle, with our slowness, with our stupidity even. He loves. He is understanding. So much so, he didn't just meet us halfway. He meets us in our sin and death. And that's what he's getting at in verses 8 and 14. Because this sandwiches this, this thesis that he's trying to shock us awake with. Because what he's saying is that to be in Abraham, to be a son of Abraham, as he's saying that the Galatians are, is to be in Christ, and to be in Christ is to be in Abraham. You do not need to get circumcised. That it, there is no, this is not an additional requirement. They are one and the same. And their one and the same is united by grace through faith. In fact, it, if anything, it is, it is pulling into fulfillment something, this covenantal language that we just only had the vague outline of in Genesis. He brings it all together. The blessing of God's promise to those in Abraham through faith is now sealed in his promised offspring in Christ. And that becomes embodied in the church. In other words, if you're here, you're doing it. I'm going to jump into the Q&A here in just a minute. But I want, to, I want to end with three kind of so what answers so three like implications or application points of like, okay, I just covered a lot of ground. I think we're, I think we're conceptually there. And I want to return to where we began of this question of like, what, is, what does it mean to consider faith? What is faith? Number one, what Paul is describing here and is an implication is that grace is not an add-on. Grace is not something that you add on to your buffet tray on top of everything else. It is the tray on which everything rests, okay? If you're a Christian, hear, me, hear this. The gospel is not a hobby. It's everything, okay? 
There's no part of yourself, there's no part of your life that, that Jesus does not insist on redeeming. I love this quote from Abraham Kuyper. He says that there is not one square inch of creation over which the Lord Jesus does not shout, mine. That includes you. If you trace whatever it is that you're trying to hold back, if you trace whatever it is that you don't want Jesus to redeem or you're like, no, nah, I'm good, I got that. I'm adulting, but I don't need, to, I don't need, to, I don't need you to intervene, God. Whatever that is, I guarantee you, if you trace that to its root, you will find the lesser law that you've been relying on that is causing wrestling and struggling with faith. And by the way, you're not going to have to do that once. You're not going to have to do that twice, but many, 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 many times. That's what it means to have faith. It means to rely on in an ongoing sense, okay? If you are not a Christian, be forewarned. And for welcomed, God does not negotiate with terrorists. He adopts them as sons and heirs, right? He's actually not interested in your demands, your requirements, or what you think you bring to the table. Those are nothing to him. He does not need them, and he does not care for meeting them. He cares for you and for meeting you. That is the implication here. Abraham provided God with nothing, like everything about the Genesis story that Paul is referencing and pulling in the context for the Galatian, his Galatian audience, everything about him is set to stack the cards against him. He's coming from, an un, from, from a known land to an unknown land that currently is, is, be, is populated with idol worships that I will avoid graphic descriptions of, especially because we don't have table kids from kindergarten through second grade today. Okay? There is no way Humanly speaking, Abraham was going to succeed in receiving the promised land. God would have to do it. That's grace. The second implication is that faith is not feeling saved. Faith is not feeling saved. Many who are doubting or deconstructing are right now because to, and I can unpack this if, if you like, if you have questions about this, but because the Christian, the, the Christian church in America historically speaking, and this is another symptom of individualism as well, puts a massive emphasis on emotional response to the gospel in ways that can, can form and shape people to think that our emotional response to the gospel is the measure of whether we are saved or not. How do you measure that? You don't. We're affected, we, our feelings are affected by what we eat. Never mind the circumstances we're in. Never mind how whether we're doing it right, whatever that is, right? This is a curse <laughs> that we've got to undo. Let me, let me explain it another way. Um, I've used this analogy before of, like, it's one thing to believe that a, a bridge will hold your weight because you have, uh, you know, if you're an engineer, you're like, oh, this is my illustration. This is perfect. Because you've read the, uh, you know, the, the, the blueprints and you know the principles of how arches support greater weight than just a, you know, a, a horizontal beam, etc. And you know all the things. You've got the architectural engineering degree and you know that that bridge will hold your weight. That's, that you can believe that. That's great. But you actually don't believe it until you walk across it. Not in the way that the Bible talks about the word belief. That's relying on the bridge to cross it. Now, 
What's difficult about this, and here's where we extend it and how this relates to what I was just saying about kind of our emotional response, is way too often we wait until we feel like the bridge will hold, us, hold our weight until we walk across it, right? We, we know it will in our head because we've studied the blueprints. We, we are waiting to for our hearts to, to feel like it, it will hold our weight until with our hands, just because the alliteration is helpful, Walk across the bridge, and guess what? You're not going to feel it until you rely on grace, right? It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. It is not, how, it is not that you are walking across the bridge and, and not using the handrails because you are confident and you feel really good about it. It's that you're walking across the bridge. It's, 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 the, it's the bridge, you're walking across it is relying on it. That's not the thing that saves you. It's the bridge that keeps you from falling, not the walking, and also not the feeling like you're not falling. When, when Paul pulls in that Abraham believed and was counted righteous, what he is saying is not because he felt confident that God was going to fulfill his promise. It's that he ordered, reordered his life around it. It's that he, he believed it enough to, to go on and to rely as if it is true and trust God to, pro, to deliver on his promise even if he struggled to believe it. That, again, is grace. The last point, and then we'll jump into the Q&A is that when we sing on Sundays often, or when we think about our life as, a Christian, as Christians to be in Christ alone, that does not mean that we are alone in Christ. That is actually the law of individualism talking. You see, Abraham was alone. He was leaving his family to go to the promised land, and he was trusting with like no evidence except, I mean, it does help that God is like verbally somehow speaking to him, like, directly, like, he would have to. There is no other evidence, no, no drop breadcrumbs to, to, to be able to make that connection. He was alone in his faith journey, and we are not at all. When, when Paul says that you are sons of Abraham, he's saying you all collectively together and as one are his heir, his legacy. Do, you don't have to be Abraham, actually. You don't have to do that because Jesus did it for you. That's what it means to be in Christ alone, not and to not be alone in Christ. We have many brothers and sisters to lean on. And when we are blind to where we live by the law, we have a family of faith to help us to believe, to live by, to rely on the gospel rather than these lesser laws that cast a spell on us. And thank God, because I need you all to point me back to that as much as you need each other and, and, and anyone. That's what, that's the gift of the church. All right, let's see what questions we have this morning. <laughs> Did you use the Topo Chico to baptize the kids this morning? <laughs> okay, look. I love Topo Chico, but I don't love Topo Chico. You know what I mean? 
Also, it just says, like scripturally speaking, it's baptism is with water and in the Trinity. So it could technically count, but you do not have to worry about me doing that, okay? Cool, okay. Uh, second, I hear that if the only goal is not to disappoint someone, your goal is lifeless. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but how do you, practically speaking, stay engaged with all the demands of life when inevitably you will disappoint someone? That is a great question. I'm really hoping you can help me with that. No, really. That is hard. And as I was preparing for this sermon, in my trying, like, it, in a lot of ways, it was actually my preparing for this sermon that made and forced me to look at it in ways that was actually new and fresh for me. And so this, to answer your question at least partially, this is, that's what God's doing. Thankfully, thank God, I actually also, let me put it this way, it is very easy to replace one lesser law with another lesser law. And I could replace the lesser law of not disappointing people with another lesser law of not caring whether I disappoint people or it not mattering. To, to, to keep up with the demands and everything and all of that is to trust that God will allow disappointment to happen as a result or not and to pursue grace and love with truth. It's the best I can do and all I can do. And I'm going to, just like Abraham, like needed to be told by God, no, 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 it's not Lot, it's not your nephew, it's not, also not this other error, this, this other uh, heir, um, and it's also not whatever other cockamamie schemes, and it's also not dependent on you getting it and not like allowing your wife to be had by Pharaoh on your way to Egypt. Like, you, you, you need to understand, Abraham slash Brad. When I say it's by grace, I mean that's it. And sometimes he uses these ways that are, uh, these lesser laws that we rely on instead to help point us back to grace. So, you're a gift to me. Like, I feel like I, I don't know. I, <laughs> this, is, this may be one of the harder questions because it's, it's simultaneously asking something that is hard for me to see in myself. And also, there are so many ways that, that God provides grace and means of grace in the church to meet me there. And I'm, I'm really, truly ungrateful. One of those ways that we are one of those, the, the, the most beautiful means of grace that we have is the combination and intersection of his word and sacrament. And that sa the sacraments are the one you've already seen this morning, which is baptism, which is, is, is God's welcoming of us into his covenant family. And then the way that it is sustained and the way that we exercise our faith in response to that grace is to receive his invitation and then respond to his invitation to the table. Right? Think about it this way. Uh, baptism is a passive covenant. Communion is an active covenant. This is where we exercise faith. What little we have, this is where we walk across the bridge to receive the grace that he, is, he wants to give us. Okay? And there's nothing magical about this, this bread and wine um, this morning, and there was nothing magical about the bread and wine that he shared with his friends, the disciples, on the morning or in the evening of Passover. And on that evening, he took the bread, 
and he broke it. He says, this bread is my body. It is broken for you. You will always break whatever law you rely on for your salvation. I will be broken so that you can be made whole by grace. It's the only way it works. It's the only way it happens. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. As slow as you may be to believe, guess what? My washing away of your sin is not done by your belief. It's actually done by my blood. And you are invited to believe and to be blessed by that. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. You proclaim that salvation is by grace through faith alone until I come back so that you never have to wonder or question again because I will make that reality full and the legacy that I promised Abraham in the, with the whole cosmos being redeemed will be your inheritance. Hallelujah. In a minute, I want you, as, as Danny is in, in the band is leading us in worship, come on up. And as soon as there are eight or ten gathered around, we'll pass out the communion elements, and then we'll take it together as a family, or excuse me, as the family that God has made us and adopted us into. Okay. I want to tell you, if walking across this bridge, you are worried it won't hold your weight, come and eat anyway. It doesn't depend on the strength of your confidence or of your faith. It depends on Jesus, and this is him giving himself for you, to you. Let's pray. Jesus, oh, how we need you. It is amazing how the, the screensaver of my heart defaults toward thinking that you just put up with me and that I just need to not disappoint you. But Lord, I know that even if and as I or we disappoint one another, Lord, in Christ we are approved of in the extreme, in ways that we don't even have the language to articulate. So Lord, please be, be the nourishment we need that as we, as we trust that your grace is enough, Lord, that you would reassure us of that truth because it's real. It is an ultimate reality. Lord, thank you that this does not depend on us, but it just depends on you. That is the only way this could ever work. And wow, is it beautiful. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.